Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. We're joined by two Chagas colleagues working on biodiversity, agroecology, and uh, water quality in, in uh, Johnstown Castle, uh, Dara Hulahan and uh, John Finn. You're welcome, lads. So thank you, Pat, and thank you, Park. So this presentation is on farmland biodiversity and looking at some of the ecological policy and practice in this area. And it's a joint presentation between, between myself and my colleague, John Finn. So as a background, so myself and John undertake research in, in biodiversity. Uh, we're part of the Environment, Soils and Land Use Department based in Johnstone Castle down in Wexford. Uh, and then we are part of the Agri-Ecology sub-programme, where the, the main objective of the sub-programme is to undertake research that tries to maintain and enhance biodiversity within agricultural ecosystems or within agricultural systems. And this is on a gradient of intensity scales from extensive systems uh, right through to our more intensive systems. As I said, and as Pat said, there are two permanent researchers, myself and John. Uh, the kind of the joke is that we rarely travel together in case there's an accident and then that's the end of the agroecology sub-program. But there's two of us working in the area and about half of our time is dedicated to biodiversity. We obviously collaborate with multiple partners in a variety of different sectors from research, KT, policy, and then also with landowners. So as we would have heard over the last couple of weeks from the presentations as part of the signpost series, but also as we would have heard in the news, we're seeing that there's a significant decline in biodiversity globally over the last number of decades. So this was floated in the Global Assessment of Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services two years ago, only last week, we saw the Living Planet Report for 2020, which again highlighted decline in biodiversity. And at a global scale, we're seeing that there's about 1 million species face extinction as a result of human activities. And we're familiar with signpost uh, species such as polar bear that are threatened with global extinction because of human activities. But closer to home, there's the trends for biodiversity are following this global trend also, and that there's a significant decline in biodiversity nationally. And Ireland was one of the first countries to declare a climate and biodiversity emergency because of these declines in biodiversity. And our polar bear are species such as the corncrake, which are also threatened with extinction in this country, unless activities are undertaken to try and reverse these declines. So what are the drivers of biodiversity decline? So again, the global assessment indicated five key drivers of biodiversity decline and the decline in ecosystem services globally. So land use change has the largest negative impact on ecosystems. So this was the, the main driver for decline globally. And we're familiar with, with destructive images, such as the, the decline in, in rainforests, for example, because of land use change uh, associated with logging and land use change. But closer to home also, we're seeing a change in land use. And for example, in this picture from, from Kerry, where we're seeing a decline in, in upland heat in this case, where it's being converted to grassland. And again, this has a, a negative impact on biodiversity, but also on the other associated ecosystem services uh, for that uh, habitat. Other challenges uh, include exploitation of species, climate change, pollution, and alien invasive species, all of which have contributed to global decline of biodiversity. So against this backdrop of global decline, we're familiar that there've been a variety of pieces of ecological policy aimed to try and reverse this decline. Over the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years, there have been numerous ecological policies from the Ramsar Convention, Byrne Convention, or Habitats Directive 30 years ago that we're familiar with, but then also nationally, we're seeing national biodiversity plans that are trying to reverse this decline from an ecological point of view. 
and they have had limited success really if we're looking at the, the global state of affairs in reversing these declines. But it's also very important to focus on agricultural policy and the role agricultural policy can play in trying to reverse these declines, particularly in Ireland where 65% of the land area is dedicated to agriculture. So therefore agriculture policy has a key role to play. For example, greening in the recent iterations or the last iteration of the common agricultural policy, but a greater focus on environmental services associated with agriculture and trying to protect these services. We also saw the introduction of ecological focus areas for the first time, whereas a dedicated area was, was targeted for retention of species and ecosystem services on tillage farms in this case, where 5% of the land area had to be targeted with ecological focus areas. So we're now seeing incorporation of eco ecological objectives within agricultural policy. And after much uh, potential and much optimism at the start, I think uh, information now in recent years in relation to the evaluation of this policy, we're seeing this optimism beginning to subside, particularly in the last few years where we have seen evaluation of greening and of the ecological focus areas, for example, from the European Court of Auditors. And it was particularly critical for a number of elements of greening and EFAs. It culminated in saying that greening has led to a very limited change in farming practices. And another criticism was that member states aimed to limit the burden on farmers and themselves rather than trying to maximize environmental potential. Other evaluations we've seen only this year, an evaluation of CAP, and again, amongst the many criticisms, one of the key ones was that most CAP funding has little positive impact on biodiversity. And again, linked with what Laura Nicole was speaking about last week, another evaluation from a pollinator's point of view, again, in the last number of months, was that the EU framework for wild pollinators had little effect in halting their decline. So it's against this backdrop that we're seeing new policy and the need for new strategies trying to reverse these declines. And in the last few years, we've seen the EU Green Deal being floated. And then at the start of the summer, we saw what this EU Green Deal would look like. And for the first time, we saw the EU biodiversity strategy and the farm to fork strategy being launched on the same day, and then showing significant synergies between one another. And again, this highlights that biodiversity is shaped by and dependent on agriculture. And if we're hoping to reverse the declines in biodiversity, we need agriculture and ecological policies to be intertwined with one another. And some of the key uh, objectives within this EU Green Deal or within the biodiversity strategy was to see the decline in pollinators to be reversed, uh, looking at reductions in nutrients and pesticides. So in this case, pesticide chemical pesticides to be reduced by about 50% in the next 10 years. And also a key objective was that 10% of agricultural area would be dedicated to landscape features. So how will this work? So it's likely that elements of the Green Deal will be incorporated in the next iteration of CAP, which is being negotiated at the minute, and the next iteration of the Common Agricultural Policy. So we're familiar with the more traditional common agricultural policy where in pillar one, you had cross compliance and some environmental obligations under cross compliance. More recently, we saw greening incorporated in pillar one and then sitting on top of this, we had pillar two and the agro-environment schemes. The next iteration of the cap is likely to see enhanced conditionality as part of pillar one and greater expectations again in relation to environmental objectives. So this could look at, for example, looking at percentage of the farm that would be dedicated to habitats could be incorporated within this enhanced conditionality. But then we're also going to see this new eco scheme incorporated within pillar one. And again, our more traditional agri-environment schemes incorporated within pillar two. 
And again, there's huge opportunities here in relation to habitat quality and looking at schemes to try and enhance habitat quality. And there's greater flexibility under these new iterations of CAP where member states can design these schemes for their own conditions and their own scenarios. So if we focus on habitat quantity, there are significant challenges then for policymakers. And it's kind of incumbent on all of us who are working in this area of research or ecological research or advice or practice that we try and support policymakers by overcoming some of these challenges in relation to habitat quantity. And four of the key challenges that we we'll speak about today are looking at habitat mapping and how can we support policymakers in relation to mapping of habitats. Uh, looking at habitat area scenarios, how do we set thresholds or how thresholds should be set to move up from the EFAs of 5% habitat area that was insufficient to what the next scenarios may look like. To looking at eligibility of habitats and then also to ensuring that there's additionality in relation to retention of biodiversity because of these agroecological policies. So if we look at the first one in relation to habitat mapping, well, where do we currently stand? Well, there's no national scale assessment or there's no national scale inventory of biodiversity for the country. So we do have maps for SACs and SPAs and great work is being undertaken by the National Parks and Wildlife Service in relation to mapping these. But these account for only designated sites and designated species, about 14% of the land area. So we have about 85% of our land area with habitats associated with it, which isn't being mapped. Also, there's good work being undertaken by the National Biodiversity Data Centre in collating information about certain species. But this is dependent on individuals collecting some of this data and it's sporadic on occasion throughout the country. So addressing the habitat mapping is a significant challenge. But again, there's work being undertaken by Chagas that can try and address some of these at a national or at a regional scale. So recently, Chagas with collaborators in IT Sligo looked at developing an ideal HNV map, so an ideal uh, high nature value farmland map, using a variety of different proxies or a variety of different indicators to identify the likelihood of certain areas being high nature value farmland. So looking at using Korean land data maps, looking at using stocking density information, looking at using soil maps, and looking at using a hedgerow or, or watercourse density maps. So using proxies to try and identify HNV. And by undertaking maps such as this, then we have the capacity to track change over time, to see are certain areas declining in the proportion of HNV to have, or are other areas improving in relation to the proportion of HNV. The next step in relation to HNV that we'll be undertaking is trying to incorporate forestry in this case, which hasn't been in included in our farmland map, to incorporate that, and that's a new project that we're undertaking with GMIT. So in re that's at a regional or, or a national scale. What do we do at a at more farm scale? And the programme for government recently launched during the summer recommended there would be a baseline biodiversity, biodiversity survey on every farm in the country. So this is going to be a significant body of work. We have about 130,000 farms in the country. And traditionally what would have undertaken is that, that ecologists would have visited farms and mapped the habitats within these farms. What we're now looking at in research with Chagask is looking at remote mapping of ID to ID these habitats. So using orthophotography and using improvements in satellite imagery and, and, and drone footage to try and identify these farmland habitats. So you get a map of the farm, you, you get an ecologist or a specialist to look at these farm maps such that you can identify the habitats within. 
And the EU Smart Agri Hub is undertaking research. So Chagas within that is undertaking research in this area. And it's being incorporated on a pilot scale within the National Farm Survey. The next step then is ultimately that we would hope to get machine learning, such that machines and computers can start identifying these habitats with some ground truthing from ecologists looking at the imagery. So they are some of the challenges associated with mapping. So where do we currently stand in relation to the value of mapping? So again, why is there a need for a baseline biodiversity survey on every farm? Well, firstly, it'll help inform and shape current policy and prepare us for future policy in relation to demands for future policy at a national or at an EU scale. But there are also opportunities in relation to, from a societal or from an agribusiness point of view, in that biodiversity can then be incorporated within sustainability benchmarks. So we could look at Bordbia or Origin Green and looking at how to include habitats within these sustainability assessments. And then how do we ensure that credit is given to farmers with the highest quality or the highest quantity of habitats within their farms? So currently, what is the area of, of habitats on Irish farms? The current scenario, well, again, the caveat being is that we have no national scale assessment uh, or inventory of biodiversity. So we're depending on smaller scale uh, or local scale studies being undertaken by individuals or by research institutes. Recently, studies by Sullivan et al and Chardon et al indicate that between 12 and 14% of the farm area is dedicated to farmland habitats. More recently again, so last year, Julie Larkin from Chagask undertook a study on farmland habitats on more intensive farms. And she found that about six to 10% of the land area was dedicated to habitats. When we split this between farming enterprise, we were seeing that dairy was at about 12%, beef was at about 8%, and tillage was at about 7.5%. But that's based on, air, on, on average area. I think in this instant, a number of large farms in the dairy sector had significant amount of habitats, which skewed the results a wee bit maybe. So a median would probably be a more reflective average. And again, the median for all three was about 7%. More recently, again, we undertook research as part of the farm eco-studies, looking at different habitats within different sectors, within different regions and within different enterprises. And a study was published by Rosa Roches Rivalte that is uh, currently uh, being published. And again, we're, we compared two different regions. And again, we're seeing, for example, in the Wexford region, intensive farms were about six to 10% of the land area. Intermediate farms were about 12 to 16% and then our extensive farms were over 20%. When we looked at our Sligo region, again, intensive was pretty similar for the, for the studies that Julie Larkin and others were doing, that about six to 10%, intermediate slightly higher between 18% in this case. And then in our Sligo, the, our extensive farms were over 40%. So again, this is because certain farms within this region, the entire farm was a habitat. So we, what policy needs to be cognizant of this difference between gradient in intensity. Unsurprisingly, extensive farms have more habitats than our intensive farms, but also the, the nuances of the differences between different regions. So where we're seeing significant differences between the region of Sligo, for example, in this instance, and Wexford. So this can help inform threshold scenarios. For example, we need, if, if a threshold is to be set under the next cap or to be set under the EU biodiversity strategy, we need to be cautious that if we set the threshold too low or if the threshold is too low, that there will be accusations that they were trying to limit the burden on farmers and on policymakers. So for example, every farm exceeded 3%. So if we move to an average for intensive farms, then you can see that there's, it's going to be exceeded by our extensive farms, but it's going to be more challenging for intensive farms to reach the 7%. How would we 
how would it look, for example, if we were setting a target at 10% as per the EU biodiversity strategy? Well, again, we're seeing most of our extensive and intermediate farms are exceeding this, but only 20% of our intensive farms are exceeding this. And then we need to start considering, well, how do you reward farms according to the amount of semi-natural habitats? You can still have your baseline conditionality that all farms must uh, strive to achieve. But then you could look at, for example, incorporating elements within an eco-scheme such that those farms that significantly exceed this baseline conditionality, that they would be rewarded for having these higher amounts of habitats on their farms. A second significant element is eligibility. So what are high diversity landscape features? So we're familiar with all the habitats that could be on a farm, from those that are food producing right through to those that are semi-natural habitats, for example, in this case. But even within semi-natural habitats, there is different recognition from a policy perspective in relation to these different habitats. So if we look from a policy point of view, there are those habitats that are protected by policy. So these, we could call them valued habitats. So habitats such as hedgerows, tree lines and drainage ditches are landscape features. So farmers are incentivized to retain them. So therefore they're protected under current policy in Ireland. The second grouping is these optional habitats such as semi-natural grassland or wet grassland or field copses. Just the option to retain them as a part of an agri-environment scheme or as part of an EFA but it's not mandatory to do so, or there's nothing to stop a farmer from removing semi-natural grassland and converting it to more intensive grassland. So these are optional habitats. And then the third large group are these undervalued or ignored habitats. So there are no incentives for farmers to retain these habitats. Habitats such as, apart from those that are designated, so habitats such as streams or ponds or woodland uh, are removed from single farm payments. So therefore there's a perverse incentive for farmers to convert these semi-natural habitats to more intensive habitats or food producing habitats. And again, the Farm Eco study looked at the difference between these policy valued habitats and their occurrence throughout regions and also their occurrence across an intensity gradient. And when we look at our Wexford setup, we can see that it's pretty uniform between intensive and extensive in the amount of valued habitats. Where a habitat is valued, more or less the same amount is occurring regardless of the intensity gradient of the farming enterprise. We're seeing our op optional habitats are, are declining and are only occurring in significant amounts on our extensive farms. And again, similarly with our undervalued habitats, they're occurring in all farms or in all intensity gradients, but they're occurring more frequently in our extensive habitats. When we look at our Sligo region, again, pretty similar in relation to the amount of valued habitats, regardless of farming intensity gradient. Uh, but then when we look at our undervalued or ignored habitats, we're seeing that it's a significant proportion of our extensive farms in the Sligo region. So this indicates that policy protection is a significant driver of certain habitat quantity. So regardless of, of region or regardless of farming intensity, where habitats are protected by policy, a similar amount is occurring throughout. So the bigger challenge then is for our undervalued habitats, where habitats aren't protected by policy. They are now in danger of being lost because of two reasons, either intensification to convert these undervalued or ignored habitats into some other type of habitat or to a food producing habitat, or there's also the danger that they could be abandoned altogether because farming in many of these regions is less profitable. So that's the challenge with eligibility. Another challenge with eligibility is in relation to lessons we've learned from ecological focus areas. And traditionally, we would have considered an ecological focus area to be kind of non-producing areas. So habitats such as hedgerows was a non-productive ecological focus area. 
But iterations of the of CAP policy also included productive EFAs. So countries could select productive EFAs. So things such as fields of peas or beans, or cover crops or cash crops could be considered an EFA, even though the likelihood that they were supporting significant proportions of ecology was low. When we looked at how Ireland compared to the EU in relation to selecting these habitats, well, most of the EFAs on Ireland were non-producing EFAs, which was significantly higher, twice the, the EU average, where most of the EFAs on, in, within the EU were these productive EFAs. And in one way, you can say, well, that's, that's encouraging. When we look at Ireland again, so most of the EFAs were non-producing and they were dominated by landscape features, by hedgerows in this case. So you could say that the, this scenario or this policy rewards high levels of biodiversity on Irish farms because there was a significant proportion of landscape features already occurring on our uh, arable farms. This was rewarding Irish farmers. But on the flip side, you could also say that landscape features were already protected under cross compliance. So therefore, there may have been a lack of additionality because they were already protected. There was going to be no additional biodiversity because these landscape features were also already protected. So this is the challenge with additionality. And also our EFA measures didn't include anything really in relation to habitat quality or habitat quality. So as a summing up and the four main elements that we're, we're considering in relation to habitat quantity, so we need greater uh, efforts in relation to mapping such that we can inform current situations and trends and prepare us for future policy scenarios. We need to be cognizant of setting habitat areas and we need to incentivize those to retain habitats. But then how do you start rewarding those that significantly exceed certain thresholds? So reward those with more habitats. We need to consider eligibility. So policymaker decisions now influence what habitats are going to be retained and protected and how the landscape will look in the future. And a key one here, for example, is in relation to ponds, where we're seeing ponds are significant for retaining biodiversity. Only recently in the last week, we've seen papers in this area. The EU biodiversity strategy highlighted the value of ponds as a landscape feature eh, for biodiversity, but currently ponds, for example, are ineligible under cross-compliance. And then we need to look at additionality. We need to look at the value of multiple habitats. And again, this is the kind of Goldilocks syndrome, whereas you want to encourage the incorporation of many habitats from a biodiversity for retaining biodiversity, but then we need to be cautious about what habitats we are including. For example, do you include fields of peas and beans or legumes, for example? Is that a habitat for biodiversity? So again, we need to be cautious and look at the ecological value of these habitats also. So Shin Shin, it goes over to John. Pat. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Dara. So if you could stop sharing and let John share. Okay. Okay, great. Thanks, John. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Dara. Um, so in this section, I'd just like to return to a few uh, additional themes that uh, build on Dara's ideas and, and his discussion about habitat quantity and start incorporating habitat uh, thoughts about habitat quality. Uh, I want to briefly introduce uh, results-based approaches and what they look like and how they, they can drive habitat quality and then finish off with uh, a few concluding comments, including uh, thinking about how can we start moving from you know, public payments for public goods to incorporate some sort of a market or private payments for public goods as well uh, in, 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 a, in a brief session. So um, 
as Dara introduced, you know, traditionally uh, a lot of EU CAP uh, measures have focused on habitat quantity. And what we see in the EU biodiversity strategy and from lots of other, you know, from ecological practice and recommendations and research, it's absolutely clear that habitat quantity on its own will not be enough. Yes, it's very important, but if we want to conserve and restore biodiversity rare, uh, and, and species and habitats, it'll also require a focus on quality. Um, farmers are well used to the difference between quantity and quality. You can have uh, 10 animals and some of them will have very low condition scoring and, and others will have very high condition scoring. You can have a thousand liters of milk and some of it can be considered much higher quality and command a premium compared to another thousand liters of milk. It's the same with habitats. We can have two fields that can be managed in the exact same way. Uh, one of them can have a, a very mediocre or medium level of species richness. Whereas in the other field right beside it, you can see a lot more rare plants and associated with those rare insects. And this is where, this is where a lot of real biodiversity is captured and will be very dependent on a focus on quality. Uh, in the coming years, there's uh, a new, with this new renewed focus on biodiversity restoration, uh, one would expect an increased emphasis on quality and habitat quality uh, through and it will be interesting to see how this will manifest itself in the CAP and the strategic plans through changes perhaps to the conditionality, eco schemes or pillar two, but that's all in the realm of the policymakers and we'll see what will happen there in the coming months and years. Um, I'd like to, uh, just looking at, uh, returning again to Julie Larkin's work that Dara introduced, which was looking at the differences in habitat quantity across some farming uh, enterprise types. Uh, Julie also uh, found that the dominant habitat type in her study was hedgerows. Not surprisingly, we know that the Irish countryside is quite dominated and famously dominated by hedgerows. And Julie looked at the uh, hedgerow quality. She also looked at field margin quality. So just quickly introduce the results of that work. Um, so here we can see an example of a hedgerow which is not of high quality. It's a it's actually quite poor quality. It's very uh, narrow, short, and has very little plant diversity associated either in terms of woody uh, plants or uh, the ground flora. Uh, in contrast, here's a, a quite impressive image from uh, Donald Sheehan and the Bride Project in Fermoy with uh, you know, a, a beautiful hedgerow with uh, lovely flowering um, uh, tree, uh, shrubs and trees in the, along the tree line. Uh, a very impressive understory with a lot of diversity at the field margin at the base of it. So, um, you know, we can, we can take examples like these and contrast them, but they don't give us a representative idea of what actually goes on in the countryside. So in Julie's study, which was focused on more intensively managed beef farms, dairy farms, and tillage farms, uh, she had a look at how hydro quality uh, varies across these. So um, on, the, on, on this axis, we see a distribution of uh, high, good, moderate, and low quality categories, and the percentage of hedgerows occurring within them. Uh, now, and we can see that in general, the vast majority of hedgerows were in the low quality category. Um, now, this work used the hedgerow appraisal system of Folks et al., which uh, is quite a demanding approach, I have to say, it, it is comprehensive. But it's quite clear from it that it, uh, it that the quality of hedgerows is low, and there's plenty of opportunity there to improve them. Um, looking at the field margin uh, work again, this is an example of a poor field margin, which is quite narrow. Uh, uh, on, on that field, you can see 
uh, up close that there are examples where there's been pesticide drift and nutrient drift into the field margin. And again, in contrast, here's a field margin of medium quality. Uh, it's wider, it's denser, but it's got quite a few um, uh, weedy species in it, or it's dominated by, by single species in the flora. And here's an example of uh, an excellent uh, quality field margin. One or two bits of bracken, but otherwise uh, an, an excellent example of a field margin, again, from the Bride Project. And I would direct people to the farm habitat management guidelines produced by the Bride Project EIP recently, which is a, a wonderful publication indicating these types of quality issues and how to manage for them. So coming back to uh, the research on this and what did Julie find and her work um, with ourselves and Helen Sheridan and UCD find? Uh, and again, it's a much, a much better story, but we still see that in this categorization from very high, high to very low, the majority of hedgerows are in, uh, sorry, field margins are in the acceptable low or very low. Um, no, I think th this is quite interesting in that uh, at the same time, uh, it would see, we would see that there's quite uh, a significant proportion of the hedgerows, are, sorry, field margins, are in the high and very high categories. And remember, as Dara said before, these are voluntarily managed and voluntarily kept at, in this state by these farmers. I think it's also heartening that uh, the number of hedgerows in this category, with probably minor nudges and changes in management, could be pushed into high and very high. And I think this is an example of how, uh, given the right incentives and maybe even just the correct instruction, uh, many farmers would be willing to do so. Uh, moving on to another example of habitat quality from uh, colleagues working in the Kerry Life Project um, uh, in, in my native county of Kerry, of course, a very beautiful part of the country. Uh, they're very concerned with the conservation of the freshwater pearl mussel. And a key issue there is control of sediment coming from the land and the catchments uh, through uh, water, small water courses, and into the larger water courses where you've got an awful lot of very important populations, in this case, a breeding population, one of the few, of freshwater pearl mussel. Again, a key issue is eliminating this bare earth and elements of overgrazing that you can see in the catchment. Uh, that increase, even to a very small extent, increase and have a very large impact on the freshwater pearl mussel. So in this example in year one, um, we see the situation which they wanted to change to look like this one on the bottom in year three, which is a much heavier vegetation, um, certainly not overgrazed, much greater coverage of the bare earth. And again, trying to eliminate that source of sediment going into this very, very important uh, water course and this very, very important area for freshwater pearl mussels at a European scale. So again, uh, not just focusing on this glamour story, we want to look at, well, representatively across the catchment uh, and, and the project, what did we see? Um, so again, in year one, across 434, area, 434 hectares of area that were targeted by the uh, Kerry Life team to be key areas where they wanted to reduce uh, the sediment flow, flow from critical source areas. And the baseline was uh, at the very highest level where they considered there to be no problem and was the target outcome. It was 8% of the 434 target areas were in the condition that they wanted. By year three, they had 53% of that 434, air, uh, 434 hectares of area uh, in the target condition. So a lot of this was driven by uh, payments that were conditional on achieving different levels of, of, of this category from one, which was poor, 
to five, which was the target outcome. And farmers' payments were contingent on whether they get one, two, three, four, or five. And we can see this was extremely effective in restoring the condition to the target outcome. In a classic example here from uh, Brendan Dunford and colleagues in the, in the uh, Burren Life, uh, Burren for Conservation Program, and now the Burren Program, uh, Brendan and Sharon Parr um, have been working on this for several years, and you can see this time series. So the key point here is that on the bottom axis here, we see a measure of condition score. So these are for grasslands, which uh, contain species-rich grasslands and contain some of the rarest and finest examples of, of uh, plant species in the country. And uh, zero being a very low scoring grassland and 10 being a high scoring grassland with uh, you know, an, an absolutely outstanding example of species-rich grasslands dominated by orchids and other rare species. And within each of these categories, we see a time series going from 2010 to 2018. And just draw your attention to uh, the temporal series where we see over time this rightward shift in the score that all of these lower scoring, all of these lower scoring um, uh, categories have shifted to the right uh, in red, sorry, have shifted from the red area here to the right. And we see this corresponding increase in the higher scoring um, categories. So this is a, a wonderful example, again, of how this reasonably rapid change, but also an effective change in uh, restoring biodiversity, uh, bringing these grasslands into the condition that they're uh, intended to be as a targeted outcome, and all based on very smart structuring of payments. And this uh, is an ex excellent example of results-based payments, where we are incentivizing farmers to not just have habitat quantity, but it's also habitat quality. And it's not just about incentivizing farmers. I mean, this is a wonderful example as well from a social point of view and a local governance point of view, where the farmers themselves are intimately involved in the design and implementation and the pride of place that comes from this kind of achievement. Um, but again, the financial structure behind it and the results-based payments are key to helping maintain this uh, uh, change over time. Uh, what I love about this as well and the previous example is that it's actually tangible evidence of the effectiveness, the ecological effectiveness of, of these programs. So just moving on to results-based payments, uh, which are becoming increasingly uh, touted uh, and, and presented as an alternative to prescription-based payments. And in the recent um, European Court of Auditors report, uh, labeled a deep green conservation approach largely because they're focused on quality. Um, there is a, we published a, a book recently called Farming for Nature, The Role of Results-Based Payments, and that's available freely online for anybody who wants to follow up more on this. But some of the features of results-based payments are that they tend to be much more locally targeted and specific in their, in their objectives and in the evidence-based outcomes. So it's quite spe specific about what it is that is wanted to be achieved. And also, this is very often, and in, in in, as far as we know, almost entirely in communication and consultation, and often driven by local champions and with the local communities. Uh, it's characterized by special advice, uh, again, that's evidence-based, to support farmers in achieving those outcomes. There's rapid monitoring of the outcomes. And again, that example from Kerry Life, where within a three-year period of implementation of a catchment scale change, you've got the results coming back, uh, which is quite unusual compared to many of the um, uh, previous EU cap measures, which are 
slow or have no um, evidence to support what actually happened because of the implement implementation of this policy. Finally, the key point is that the payment is related to the delivery of the outcome. Um, so again, this is essentially a performance related payment where the more that the ecological target is achieved, the greater the payment that is associated with it. And I'll talk about that again uh, in a moment. Just to contrast, um, uh, sorry, briefly, the, so Ireland is considered now a leader in the implementation and the research on results-based approaches uh, through fantastic work of, of individuals that I won't name here, uh, but several individuals who've worked um, for the last decade or two on these issues, uh, culminating in several projects at the moment that are, have successfully implemented results-based approaches in the Burren, uh, life projects and multiple EIPs that are um, in Ireland at the moment. And again, you can read about several of these in the book. I think it might be useful to spend a moment contrasting why, why can results-based payments be a more appropriate way of driving quality than the flat rate payments that tend to be associated with uh, prescription-based uh, agro-environment schemes or prescription-based policies. Uh, here we have an example of uh, a grassland with low or no biodiversity. It's a ryegrass dominated, intensively uh, managed sward with an intermediate grassland here, and up here, an example of a category 10 uh, highest ecological quality with multiple orchids and other rare species occurring. And this is represented here on this axis in a score from low, which is one, up to number 10. And traditional approaches tend to say, once you reach, reach some sort of eligibility or um, threshold level, you participate in the scheme, and you get the payment no matter whether your ecological condition is six, seven, eight, nine, or 10. And the contrast to this is the results-based approaches where we see the payment is, as I said, geared towards the delivery. So uh, the outcomes are quite interesting that you see any farmer who are our land area that's eligible is automatically incentivized to keep continuing to increase the ecological condition supported by specialized advice and being rewarded financially for doing so. The greater the performance, the more the payment. Uh, we, all, we all perform to these kinds of incentives. I think it's also use, useful to point out that in, in results-based payment approaches, not all of the payment or all of the policy has to be contingent on results-based. And in many of the Irish examples, we actually see hybrid approaches where we have quite targeted prescription-based or non-productive payments that complement and work with these results-based approaches, and they seem to work very, very well together. Again, you can read more about that in the Farming for Nature book. Moving on very quickly to the, to the idea of market payments for public goods. I mean, in the past, we've had um, a very strong fix on public payments for public goods, and this has become an important, uh, an important theme for the last, last 10 years for trying to drive the environmental uh, state and maintaining the environmental state of, of the wider countryside. Um, what's interesting, and it's included in the new farm to fork strategy and the biodiversity strategy, is more and more talk about how can the market support uh, the provision of public goods, whether it's biodiversity or carbon sequestration or other ecosystem services. Um, I think there's a few examples here that are, are, are very interesting. Pro Vedeland in Germany, produces meadow milk um, they've got an English, <clears throat> excuse me, an English language version of their website online where they've got very specific uh, standards and this commands a premium of one to four cents per litre uh, to produce a milk 
product which has uh, in agreement with local shops and retailers, you know, tends to have a very highlighted position in the, in the shelves there. Uh, there's conservation grade cereal and a conservation grade standard in the UK, which pays farmers, or used to anyway, uh, pays farmers for uh, attaining a specified wildlife friendly uh, mix of habitats, totaling not less than 10%. And in return for this, they get a premium but also greater security of supply to the, to the purchaser. And finally, a wonderful example here from Switzerland with the Terra Suisse label, where there's a very, um, a very specific set of ecological, uh, of ecological conditions and a, a points-based approach where the more points that a farmer, sorry, the more ecological practices that a farmer takes from a prescribed menu, the more points they get. And the baseline is more or less an ecological uh, focus area type approach, the ecological compensation area in Switzerland, that's 7% of the farm. And this is then supplemented with the Terra Suisse points-based approach and an additional premium. And Terra Suisse products within the, the Migros, Migros um, supermarket chain are uh, command a significant premium, but they're also, it's a very, very fast growing part of that food chain and is widely supported by the public and is very, very popular amongst farmers. So these market payments for public goods can complement and add value to public payments. And I think that complementarity is a really interesting approach to see how the new cap may offer the uh, better options to achieve these kind of public, uh, private, public and private partnerships for delivery of public goods. Again, they're characterized by specific criteria and they verge on being results-based approaches or are results-based approaches. Uh, very importantly, they enhance the public perception of farming and when done right and when people can show, the, especially in the Terra Suisse example, they have wonderful research underpinning it, showing the ecological transition from um, an improvement over time in the ecological state and biodiversity of the participating farms. It contribu contributes strongly to the public perception of farming. And as I said, these market type payments are a specific aim in farm to fork. So it'd be interesting to see how these manifest themselves in years to come. So to conclude, um, as Dara said, biodiversity is still declining. Um, the, cap, the, the cap is going to be expected to address the farm to fork strategy and the EU biodiversity strategy. And its funds are the largest biodiversity fund in Europe. So a lot of what happens in the next few years and the policy choices that occur there Will, will dictate the future of biodiversity and ecosystem services without doubt. Um, looking to the future, there's going to be greater emphasis on incorporating biodiversity into accreditation or standards for environmental sustainability. And I think that that will see a lot more work being done to properly credit farmers for the habitats that they have and the improvement and document that improvement over time as they, as they progress with that mentioned results-based payments and market payments. Um, something I haven't talked about, but is a huge part of biodiversity impact is international trade. And essentially where does protein and off-farm feed come from? Um, there's been a, a significant report on that topic by many people, um, but there's a, an FAO uh, LEAP report on how do we improve uh, the measurement, the quantitative assessment of these impact, biodiversity impacts of livestock systems um, uh, in, in the last year. Finally, um, what's been quite heartening is, is that, you know, we know that farmers will be central to biodiversity restoration. We know that policy reaches deep into how farmers uh, farm habitats, 
although what is very heartening as well is to see how many farmers are now truly recognizing and appreciating and taking and having a great pride of place in the role of habitats that's on their farms. And I think that these voluntary efforts of farmers is probably underappreciated as well. But nevertheless, in addition to that, policy will have a very strong impact, as Dara indicated earlier, in how habitats can be protected to a greater or lesser extent on individual farms. I finish by saying we, we've many examples of effective conservation and biodiversity restoration. We know that it can be done. We know how to do it. But I think the immediate future is about taking these lessons that we have that are project driven and case study driven and making them more systematic. OK, thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, John. If you could just end your share there we'll, and the others get back on screen. Um, just I uh, will move straight to questions if, if that's OK. Uh, there's a lot of uh, questions or comment about the loss of uh, uh, payment. And I think, Dara, you, you dealt with it in relation to um, habitat areas on farms. Uh, that seems to be uh, getting up people's nose qu quite quite a bit. It seems to be a priority going forward to to uh, resolve in future CAPI. Is that a fair comment? You would hope so. And, and particularly when it's been mentioned in Farm to Fork and EU biodiversity strategy, specific habitats such as ponds, for example, aren't recognized or aren't eligible under cost compliance, even though they play a significant role for biodiversity and other ecosystem services. Or similarly, drains are considered landscape features, whereas streams are not eligible. So there's a kind of a, a split there. So it's not surprising that where some of these habitats aren't being recognized or aren't being valued in any way that they're going to be lost within the landscape. So you would hope that this would be considered in the next iteration of CAP. John, there's, I suppose, a question that's arising, uh, I suppose, from the, the discussion on, on uh, uh, results-based. How practical is it at, um, I suppose, total agri-environmental scheme at, at GLOSS level, as opposed to the EIPs, to institute uh, results-based uh, across uh, uh, one of the much larger uh, schemes? I think it's possible. Uh, I think, first of all, results-based is not a magic bullet. We're not saying that everything has to have a results-based component or, if it, or, but, or, or, or that all results-based approaches are the same. I think a lot of these things start with what are the objectives? And when you have specific objectives, it becomes clearer then whether a results-based approach or another approach is, is appropriate. As I said, you can have elements of a, of a scheme which are not results-based, but you can also complement those further with the results-based approaches. So you could imagine tiered approaches and you would think that the higher up the tier that you go, the more appropriate and compelling is the case for a results-based approach. Uh, flipping that on its head, I mean, many of the, there's been a huge amount of research done on how we can implement results-based approaches on a more wide scale. Um, it might be, it, it might need a little bit more thought to figure out how you do that on a countrywide scale, but you know, one of the examples I gave there was the, the quality of hedgerows, for example. I mean, that, that is something that could be a national scale. It could be easy to develop at least a very basic results-based, sorry, a results assessment or a condition score for, for hedgerows and related payment to that. It's not very complicated. Okay. Uh, it doesn't have to be very complicated at that level. But as you go higher up the tier, perhaps the complexity would increase a little. But um, I think the key point here, though, is that we've had other approaches for the last 20, 25 years. And we're now at a point where 
we still have a, a dire situation globally and a dire situation in the EU about the state of biodiversity. So um, it, I think that there's, it's time for something new and a different way of doing it if we are to achieve the objectives of conserving biodiversity and not just conserving what we have, but actually restoring back to where we were some time ago. And Parik. it's hard to see results-based approaches not being a, a part of that. Parik. Lots of questions in, Pat. Um, I guess we'll kick off, Daryl, with you. You mentioned 12 to 14 percent of extensive farms for uh, kind of have to, that's the percentage of biodiversity on those farms, six to 10 percent for intensive. Were you surprised that dairy was kind of ranking so highly in that at 12 percent? And what percentage would you like to see those farms at? Okay, so, so firstly, the ranking, I was surprised that intensive farms in general were between 6 and 10% because we have this kind of image that intensive farms have less biodiversity and, and would, you would, I would have thought it was going to be lower. So I was pleasantly surprised in relation to the quantity. Now, as John highlighted, the quality on occasion wasn't that high. I think the difference in, in intensive dairy might have been skewed a little bit in relation to a certain number of farms that had a significant portion of, of wet grassland, for example. So I think the median is a better average. Where I would like to get, where you would like to get, well, that's a very difficult question. So we have to ensure that these systems are producing ecosystem services, which include production services, such as producing milk or meat or grain, whilst also supporting the other ecosystem services in relation to water quality. So I think setting a number of thresholds so you have a baseline conditionality as they're recommending under cap for certain more intensive lands for example and then rewarding those that significantly exceed this threshold is a would be a, a kind of a, a consistent approach to reward those that are producing food at one end but those that are producing biodiversity at the other end okay how do those average areas um compare to the likes of new zealand or, or other intensively farmed regions like that so again, we don't really know because we don't have national farm maps. We don't have a national cover for Ireland. Equally, most, a lot of other countries also don't have a national cover. I think our HNV map gives an indication that if we look at over 30% of the land area was considered or was likely to be in, in high nature value farmland. So that is probably higher than a lot of other countries uh, within Europe. And also the EFAs, our figures were higher in Ireland for many other countries in relation to the ecological focus areas on our tillage farms, which is again probably representative of the smaller field size that we have. And that's linked back to what Catherine was talking in her presentation. Smaller field size has greater amount of boundary and boundary is often considered a good habitat. John, over to you, just kind of on a similar train of thought. Um, what kind of area have you quantified any of the area around the field margins that you're talking? You gave examples of a, a kind of a good field margin and a bad field margin. How much of the field has been lost to a good field margin? You can have a very good field margin with two to three metres. Um, we, see, we see farmers who voluntarily have five, five metre field margins. Um, I think it's, again... It, it's, it's less about the quantity, although that's important when you're dealing with a narrow strip like that, um, and more about the quality. If you've got a narrow field margin, which has lots of uh, wildflowers in it, uh, a diversity of wildflowers, that's more important than having a, a three meter field margin, which or a five meter field margin, which is dominated by noxious weeds um, uh, or is subject to pesticide, uh, spray drift, herbicide drift, and, and nutrient drift. So I, I think it's more quality than quantity. Um, I suppose the, the issue with the field margins is that in general we would say, look, really this should be about three meters width to have a buffer against uh, spray drift and nutrient drift. And 
they're not, it's not like they're lost to production. I mean, many of the field margins, you'd encourage them to be grazed once or twice in the year at appropriate times. Yeah, and if you if you have three to five meters on the outside of a ten acre field, is that half an acre gone, a quarter of an acre gone, or have you, have you any quantification on that? Um, I don't, but I, I suppose I could do the maths very quickly there. But uh, <laughs> uh, but like the other point is, who says they have to be on all of the field? I mean, again, I I personally I, I far prefer to see uh, you don't have to have a field margin on every edge of the field. Uh, you'd be far better off having a high quality field margin on a portion of the field rather than low quality field margins on all of the field. Um, and I think that's that quality issue coming in again. If you can have a, a field margin located in a part of the field which complements another habitat, which complements a corridor or part of the field that's part of a corridor on the farm, that's probably a greater impact than spreading that same area across all of the edges of the field. So quality, not quantity. Yes. Do, you have any, do you have an opinion on why organic farming has not been promoted or taken up in Ireland? I often have the choice to buy Irish veg or organic veg and private payment or for public service. Any thoughts on that, John? Sorry, what was the question again? Why? So, so why, really just why has organic farming not been taken up in Ireland? Do you think, you know, obviously it can make a, a contribution to biodiversity? Um... I've no, I've no idea the straight answer. I guess it's the maybe market signals, maybe, uh, maybe a push from, dare I say, organisations like ourselves. Um, I, I don't really know. Um, there seems to be a demand because I think we're importing quite a lot of organic, organic produce. Um, so I don't know. I do think the biodiversity claims of that organic is automatically better for biodiversity is quite contested. Um, and like most systems, it's hard to say. I mean, organic is a broad is a broad spectrum of farming in itself, and it's it's uh, not surprising that you would say, well, probably some forms of organic farming are better for biodiversity than other forms, as we would say for every other type of farming. Could Dara John please comment on the ideal HNV map of Ireland as displayed, and if they think there is a strong correlation between the intensification of dairying in the south and southeast, as per the ideal HNV map and the loss of habitat and a decline in water quality in these areas? Uh, John, I know. Uh, <laughs> so so high, high, ideal HNV isn't just habitats. So, you, so it's high nature value farmland is a specific type of farmland that is very high quality in relation to habitat. So it wouldn't be just more our generic or our, our normal or our more common habitat. So it's a, it's a specific category. In relation to parts of the south, so one of the one of the indicators we were using to create that map was stocking density. So obviously in parts of the south and part of the dairy country is in relation to higher stocking density would result in the lower likelihood of HNV. So it's not that surprising. It doesn't mean that there's less habitats down there. It's a different type of habitat down there as opposed to HNV, which is dependent on more extensive farming systems. In relation to the water quality, there's multiple challenges associated with water quality, not just farming intensity, not just dairy intensity. There's a lot of other nuances associated with water quality as well. Okay. John, have you any thoughts on that? Are we just, having up? Yeah, uh, just a, a comment on the, the high nature value uh, farming map, which is uh, very useful. Um, it, it indicates where, because I think from a look into the future, we always look upon that map as being not just a a way of looking at where things are now, but it's also saying how can things change in the future. But also from a policy point of view, it can be very interesting to analyze where are certain types of investments or payments going. 
are they targeted towards the high nature, are the biodiversity payments targeted towards the high nature value farming areas or not? My final comment on that map is just a, a, a clarification that, you know, those areas where that are dark green and we say are high likelihood of being high nature value, it's no guarantee that everything in that, that, that map was actually at the electoral district scale. It's no guarantee that everything in that electoral, dis electoral district is high nature value. But correspondingly, in those blue areas that were low nature value, that's no guarantee and, and certain, certainly shouldn't be interpreted as saying that there are no high diversity landscape features in those areas. Okay, I'm just watching the clock now because Pat could blow the whistle any minute, but we'll try to fit in one more. With the results-based approach, how closely would farmer assessment match a professional assessment and how much training does a farmer need? Could a farmer assessment be used for the payment? Dara, do you think a farmer's assessment would be suitable? Absolutely, absolutely. If the farmer is supported and trained and given the good advice, absolutely. And we've seen it in the Burren where the farmers now following training from the Burren team and, and years of working with the Burren team, they assess their own fields and they score their own fields and people say oh should they'll always score them too high but if anything they're being conservative in their scoring such that the farmer underscores a little bit relative to what an ecologist would score but then there's also going to be spot checks in relation to uh, assessing that such that the farmer no more than there are checks with other things in relation to gloss that the farmer is doing it appropriately and that these spot checks confirm that the results are the appropriate results john yeah i think that's that that's that's an important point you know the I think it's one of the features of results-based approaches is this rapid feedback. I mean, again, we know from uh, previous, across the EU agri-environment approaches, there's little or no monitoring to say, are these working well or are these, do these need to be improved significantly? You simply don't get the research feedback and you certainly don't get it within the period of one or two years. Whereas in the results-based approach, you've got the farmers going out in real time implementing something last year and coming back the following spring and seeing, did that have a positive effect or not? What do I need to do to increase that positive effect? Talking to their advisor. So that assessment that the farmer is doing is not, is not as much a formal reporting back. It's also an informal reporting to themselves to see, crikey, if I want to get to number 10 and the maximum payment, I need to do something else here. Or I am doing a great job and I am going to get my, my score 10. And just following up, just to reiterate that point that Dara made, the, the, yeah, the, then you also have a corresponding formal uh, check of, it could be a spot check or a random sample of farms participating in a results-based approach that can perform a, a formal evaluation if people are, you know, EU regulations probably wouldn't allow a formal reporting based only on farmers self-reporting, but you can easily do a, a cross-section of, of, of a farming population to assess to what extent are they reporting correctly and to do an independent verification. Just one final just comment, and it, it really follows on from that, that if we're moving to uh, results-based, it strikes me, and there's a question in relation to it, that uh, training of, of farmers becomes a critical element of, of that process. Yeah, I suppose it's worth clarifying that we don't know that we are moving to a results-based yeah. approach. We know, we know that the European Court of Auditors certainly favours it. We know the Commission is more focused on results, but that decision is policymakers. Uh, you are right, that's the other feature is that there is greater engagement with the farmers and training on the stuff that is happening on their farm. And I mean, I spoke about pride of place, uh, taking a phrase from Brendan Dunford, but that pride of place is, is enhanced greatly. And that's actually a huge part of biodiversity conservation on farmland, I think, is uh, farmers becoming aware of what's on their land, probably because, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about management for dairy and beef. We don't talk as much about management for biodiversity. 
And I think uh, building on that voluntary, uh, that voluntary work that many farmers are willing to do, and we see more and more of it on Twitter in particular, um, is, a key, is a key part of that. Um, the results-based approach focuses on that specialised training of the advisory support, but also on the specialised training to bring the farmers along. Some say, you know, you can argue, is that, is that good value for money because it's an added cost? Well, I think you can, you have to balance that against saying, well, if we are to achieve the objectives, maybe that's the only way of getting it done. And if that's the only way of achieving the objectives, well, you know, and that, that, that's the only way to do it. Okay. Listen, we better call a halt there. We've just gone a little over time. Uh, on behalf of everybody who's, who's listening, I'd like to, to thank John and Dara for two excellent presentations. And we had a huge volume of questions. A lot of them we didn't manage to get to, but uh, we'll keep them in store. Uh, I'd like to uh, thank our production team, Andy Boland and Yvonne Marr, uh, and thanks to, to Pori for help with the, the, the questions. Uh, next week, uh, we're looking at biodiversity, national capital on Irish farmlands, and it's with Jane Stout from Trinity College. Uh, so with that, thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us once again and look forward to seeing our, you being present and seeing us. We don't see you uh, uh, next week. So thanks to everybody. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.